Greetings, listener, and welcome to Slow Motion Triple Feature, a podcast in which three friends watch three movies over the course of three weeks. Each month, we'll have a different friend selecting a different triple feature for their friends to enjoy and discuss. Slow Motion Triple Feature is one of the many fine podcasts brought to you by the American Friend Institute. Kit, would you like to tell us a little bit more about the American Friend Institute? The American Friend Institute is an organization that honors the heritage of the motion picture arts. We produce educational podcasts about film, including Adam Sandler, A Life in, Picture, in Pictures, and have curated a jury-selected list of the 100 greatest films of all time. The American Friend Institute was founded out of our mutual disgust that The Exorcist was not on the American Film Institute's list of 100 greatest movies. It's also not on our list because no one nominated it. I think we all probably thought someone else would do it. So no Exorcist, but Tommy Boy did squeak in at number 100. According to the American Film Institute, Tim Burton is the greatest director of all time, and the three best films in cinema history all came out in a one-year period between 1981 and 1982, two of them starring Harrison Ford. I'm your host, Mike Keller, and I'm joined today by my good friends, Kit and Andrew. Tonight, we arrive at the third film in Kit's long-haired Tom Cruise triple feature, 1999's Eyes Wide Shut, directed by Stanley Kubrick and starring Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. The film is loosely based on the novel, novel Trom Novelle by Arthur Schnitzler and was adapted by Kubrick and Frederick Raphael. <laughs> it holds the Guinness World Record for the longest continuous film shoot at 400 days. Stanley Kubrick passed away six days after showing his final cut to Warner Brothers, and there was some controversy when the MPAA required uh, the studio to make some changes to avoid an NC-17 rating. Rather than cut any scenes, Warner Brothers digitally inserted plants and other objects into the orgy scene to obscure the sex acts. I was wondering about received... that. What? Uh, well, okay, I'll finish up real quick, and then I'll, I want to find out what version you watched. Um, but uh, so, yeah, the film received mixed reviews from critics and was a decent success with audiences, grossing one hundred and sixty two million worldwide on a sixty five million dollar budget. Um, and then so Kit, the, the version you watched, did it have the plants and things in, in front of the actors? I thought it was like a Kubrick choice, but it was like every time people were just like bunny rabbit fucking and everyone people were watching, there was like someone's head. In the OK. Way. Yep. Yeah. So you saw the censored version, I think. So. <laughs> Kit, you had not seen the film before. Uh, Andrew, had you seen it before? Yeah, several times. Okay. Um, yeah, I'd seen it several times as well. And uh, you said... I have kind of seen it before. Oh, you have? Okay. Just like bits and pieces on like, TV? I don't or? know. I haven't sat down and watched it. It just feels like there's like four scenes in this movie and everyone knows them all. And I feel like I've seen them. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, like I've seen yeah. her first, like the party at the beginning, the orgy the fight in the bedroom and then her like dream where she's like wakes up and she's all scared. And it's like, okay, then you pretty much got it. Yeah. Kind of the major uh, pieces of the film. And like, and like Sid Sidney Pollock tapping balls and shit at the pool table. Yeah. yeah. Um, tap, tap, tap a Yeah. <clears throat> um, Andrew, you said uh, you wanted to kind of introduce the film or summarize it. 
Oh yeah, I was just going to um like a really brief overview of the movie is um after Dr. Bill Hartford, uh Hartford's wife, uh Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, uh after she admits to having sexual fantasies about a man she met, Bill becomes obsessed with having a sexual encounter. He discovers an underground sexual group, attends one of their meetings, and <laughs> quickly discovers that he is in over his head. That's funny to me because uh uh I just go I just Googled that and copied and pasted it, but it's just funny to me that they refer to it as a group and he attends one of their meetings. Like it's some sort of right. like <laughs> a, AA meeting or something like that. It's a club. <clears throat> uh, that's pretty, that's it. It was just a small thing. Oh, okay, sure. Just, um, just so you know what the movie's about. Yeah. Uh, before we launch into discussing the film, um, I wanted to kind of talk about when this came out, uh, mm-hmm. the hype for this movie. Um, so, like, this is Tom Cruise coming right off of Jerry Maguire. Uh, this, I mean, that movie was 96, but this is his first film um, that he, you know, starred in uh, after Jerry Maguire, which was huge. Because he had um, to work on it for three fucking years of his life. Yeah, yeah. They shot it for two years, um, and it was pretty much just him. And, and Nicole was in a handful of other films in the meantime, but it pretty much consumed. It sounds like it pretty well consumed both of them, uh, as well as Kubrick and... Um, but yeah, I mean, you've got basically, you know, two of the biggest movie stars in the world, easily, you know, if not the most famous couple, one of the most fl- famous uh, celebrity couples. Uh, Kubrick is one of the most, you know, recognizable and acclaimed directors, even at that time. Um, he'd always had kind of like a rocky. And he, and he hadn't directed a movie in over a decade at that point. Yeah. 12 years. Yeah. His last yep. film was uh, Full Metal Jacket in 87. Um, so, yeah. And they had all just spent like, you know, two to three years working on this. Uh, Kubrick, you know, died a few months before this came out. Um, so that, you know, that was definitely in the press a lot. I remember that being covered. I, I used to get like Entertainment Weekly and Premiere and stuff. And, you know, Kubrick was already kind of this, you know, legend. Like he was this hermit, this genius. And and then he dies right before his last film is ready to come out. So that really upped the hype. And then on top of that, um, the advertising uh, was very, it very suggestive, like that this was going to be like a really sexy movie and there were all these rumors that this was going to be like a pornographic film you know Mm -hmm. and that uh, people were thinking like tom cruise and nicole kidman were actually going to have sex in the movie you know because they're a married couple that oh surely he's cast them so that they'll you know play this role or that you know just there was all the speculation uh so people were pretty hyped up for this uh in that way um at the time and uh as we get into the movie i guess we can kind of uh, imagine the disappointment of people who were going to see it for those reasons. But <laughs> I thought it would be worth noting, but, uh, but yeah, who wants to start? Uh, I guess we just, let's just discuss the story. I, I don't know that I can really zero in on, you know, one other aspect, but I guess, uh, uh, Kit, do you want to lead us off or? I think it's, gosh, it's hard to say. I will say for like a two hour and 40 minute movie, that moves very, very slowly. It wasn't boring. Um, Like I was interested. I just would say, in my opinion, the best scenes in the movie all have Nicole Kidman in them and then she's not in very much of it. So the time where he's just kind of wandering around, like it's Tom Cruise, so I'm okay. Like I'll watch, just watch him do stuff. Um, But the fight, the kind of first, it's not really a fight, I guess, but the, where she tells him her fantasy 
in the bedroom, which happens at quite very much like the beginning of the film in the first half hour, is an incredibly written and acted scene. It's awesome. Mm -hmm. And then Mm -hmm. it's in a way it's kind of all downhill from there. I think like you never get back to that, like electricity and like that, that kind of perfection. Um, But I wasn't bored watching it. Um, And I think like the movie, like the scenes she's in are also like sexy scenes. The rest of the movie is like not sexy at all, I think, which I which is on purpose, I believe. Like it's definitely supposed to be more scary than it is sexy. Um But yeah, I thought I thought that I thought it was I like that there there's some it there's it's humorous in a way like that he is so continually thwarted in his like his efforts to have sex. <laughs> like he, he he keeps coming really close, and then he's not able to make it happen for various reasons. Which like, given that the whole, uh, in my opinion, the entire thing is a dream, um, it's just I don't know. I I enjoyed it. I just wish she had gotten to be in it more. But then if she were, maybe her character wouldn't be so you know. Um, exciting. Um, it reminds me of being a teenager, like a teenage boy, and like looking, like desperately trying to find pornography or something. Just like um, <laughs> I, I know it's strange, but just like my parents, I remember my parents had a, a like a parental lock on our computer. So from like ages like fourteen to seventeen, or basically in. I mean, until I was sexually active, um, it was like like Saturday nights from like a, from the point my parents went to bed to the point the sun was coming up. Sometimes it was just like trying to like access like find ways around a parental lock, <laughs> <clears throat> which is like kind of horrifying and and uh, to actually say out loud. But uh, I think totally true for a lot of teenage <laughs> boys. Uh, so th- so this movie this movie. Like the, and I know that he's kind of acting out of like, um, you know, you know, feeling I don't know, like his masculinity's cut, uh, to put mm-hmm. into question or his jealousy or whatever. Like, so I know he's got different motivations, um, but there is something to it's just it's this sort of like odyssey, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, that's 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 my personal connection to this but movie. I, I think that works because. I mean, really, like, it's his nightmare. And there's something so nightmarish about the quest you describe as well. Yes, of definitely. Just like, definitely like is this even pleasure at this point? <laughs> like, No. No, not at all. Yeah, I completely, I completely agree. I completely agree. I'm, I may retread some of what Kit thought. From what I could gather, uh, you know, you were kind of so-so on it. Um, but... Uh, I, I enjoyed it. I liked it. I okay. just think... The thing that I liked the most about it was Nicole Kidman, and she's not in it very much. Okay. So that's not, like, really... That's not a criticism of the movie, necessarily. Right. Yeah, I do... I think... And, I mean, I think it speaks well of her performance, in a way, because I think she's, in a way... In a, in a way, she's the villain of the movie, or she's the thing that gets the story moving. She's the inciting incident. Like, so... 
it's okay that she just kind of reverberates yeah, I feel throughout like she, it without necessarily being in it. I didn't, yeah, it didn't, it didn't really occur to me that she wasn't in the, like, on this watch, like, it didn't occur to me that she wasn't in the, like, or on, pr mm. on prior watches, I should say, it hadn't occurred to me that she wasn't in the movie that much, because I think you always feel her there. Um, I mean, and part of that, too, mm. is just wa is just watching, like, a married dude walk around trying to fuck, like, and knowing who his yeah. wife is. So it's just like, you're always mm -hmm. thinking about her. Right. Right, right. We're like all of these models and prostitutes that he interacts with. It's like, dude, <laughs> like, Colt Kidman's at home. <laughs> but yeah. that's why. I mean, that's why they're perfect for this. Is like they're both, they're the uh, maybe the most attractive couple that ever lived. And <laughs> I mean, there's also like Lenny Kravitz and uh, what's her name, but like Lisa Bonet. That's that would be a contender. But like, it doesn't. That's she is mundane to him because they're married. Right. Like it doesn't matter <laughs> how amazing she looks or how sexy she is. Like they're married and that's, you know, I mean, you say this reminds you of, of like hunting of, for porn. Like I know that like when Lee and I watch this, it's like, wow, this is maybe the most accurate movie about being married that I can think of. <laughs> like that argument they have in the bedroom, like, we both, I think, relate so much, and I assume every married person does. Um, and yeah, it doesn't. It's it's Nicole Kidman naked is mundane to Tom Cruise. <laughs> I was reading something about um, uh, about how the the like the characters are set up in such a way to where you're not necessarily supposed to empathize with them but just kind of like inhabit them um which i thought was interesting because yeah. because it's like they're not they don't quite feel like real people to me um but in a very like intentional way i don't know if this makes any sense um and I think I think probably that has something to do with like the dreamlike quality of the movie i think especially mm -hmm especially once Tom Cruise is like on his own, I feel so easily like, like to like fit inside you can of slot yourself in. Yeah. yeah. And it's not, yeah. it's not, it's not like an every man sort of thing where it's like, ah, oh, he's all of us. It doesn't feel no. like that at all. Um, but yeah, I, I think I just, I really feel like we're, we're all, it's, it, I saw, I watched another video, uh, a video essay today that talked about like this, like comparing Eyes Wide Shut to video games, which I thought was really interesting, like kind of mm -hmm. like first person yeah. sort of sort of experiences and like virtually mm -hmm. virtual re like virtual reality or augmented reality or whatever, where you're like, you know, yeah. wearing like an Oculus or whatever. Um, and I totally got that. And um, it really mm -hmm. made me it really made me think. Uh, I read another another essay today about just talking about Kubrick and how he cared most about the audience. And I think that's 100% true. Um, mm -hmm. Because like, I don't think this movie is like super complicated. And no. I, and I do think, I do think he wants people to understand what he's trying to say. Mm -hmm. um, like, I don't think there's anything pretentious on screen. And I read a ton of, I'm uh, mostly bad reviews today, just because I know it got mixed um, reception mm -hmm. upon release. 
And I, f I feel like so many of those reviews totally miss the mark and just do not understand this very, very fundamental thing about uh, Kubrick. Um, but it's like all of these movies that he's made, some of them masterpieces, um, like if you really take the time to think, like I think he wants you to think about what he's saying, but I, I just, I think it's important to say that like, the dude made movies for people to enjoy like that. Yeah. I, and I think mm -hmm. that's, I think that's very present in this movie. Yeah. I feel like a lot of the reception, like at the time it was kind of your kind of average mixed reviews for a Kubrick film, but then it seemed like it kind of gained maybe not like cult status, but as it's, it kind of became like a legendary type of movie where people yes. got really yes. wrapped up in like the Illuminati or like, you know, Oh, it actually means this. Yeah. It's, you know, it's got all these, hidden meanings and little Easter eggs and things. I'm uh, sorry. I remember a rumor and I don't know if it was a rumor or if Arlie Ermey was lying, but I remember hearing somewhere that like Arlie Ermey spoke to Stanley Kubrick the night before he died. And Stanley Kubrick talked about what a big piece of shit eyes wide shut. was. Right. Yeah. I remember hearing that too. And which I don't think is true. Yeah, Like nobody else has said anything to that effect. Um, mm -hmm. but yeah, like, uh, this is probably probably somewhere between like the fifth and the 10th time that I've seen it. And so the first time that I've watched it while married or even in a relationship, uh, and like it was, I guess the thing that was most surprising to me this time on, on this viewing was how clear it is. Like it always seems so mysterious yeah. and like strange to me yeah. when I watched it when I was younger and not in a relationship. <laughs> But like, it's very, you know, it's definitely a very thoughtful movie. I think it's very dense and mm -hmm. I think there's a lot to unpack. But yeah, I definitely agree mm -hmm. that like it's all there. He really wants the audience to come along with him. He's not being, you know, obscure or. No. Um, but yeah, it's just and I thought it was fascinating too. just the whole exploration of, you know, fidelity and, you know, sexuality and, you know, Tom Cruise's mm -hmm. kind of threat and masculinity and just all of these things that. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It, and it's it's like. I think I picked up on it when I saw it before, but not to the extent that I did watching it this time. And, uh, I would, yeah, just, I, well, and it's like who, I guess, okay. I don't like, you know, I don't like to paint people with these stereotypes, but it's like, what kind of person do we most imagine is sitting there going, this is actually a message about the Illuminati. And if we could just decode Stanley Kubrick's, eyes wide shut we'd understand like that the new world order is real and all this right. stuff and it's like probably a single person <laughs> i mean yes probably like i guess that all that all their dialogue maybe seems like they're speaking in some kind of dream code or something yeah like but then if you are married and the moment that she says like yeah, in my fantasy, I was, like, wanting to fuck this other guy. And at the same time, I loved you more than I'd ever loved you. And it's like, I get it. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, that makes absolutely perfect, you know, sense. If not verbally, then, like, emotionally. Yeah. As to kind of how that works. Yeah. And I think that just kind of that more paranoid or uh, kind of bizarre interpretation of a lot of it. Um, I think they understand that there's this story about marriage running throughout, but that, you know, maybe if you don't have something to tie it to in your personal life, that's when you get, you know, right. really carried away with it. And then I, I guess though, I think Kubrick, I mean, if you, you know, poke around and 
Kubrick circles online, like, you know, there's the moon landing theory. There's all of the stuff about the shining. There's all the stuff about 2001. I think that his yeah. films are very visually dense and then maybe they lend themselves. Also, I think his reputation as this, you know, brilliant genius, I guess it all works together to kind of, and like kind of a hermit. Yeah. Like that, that he must have some secret wisdom that we have to dig and dig and dig to find. Um, but he also courts it because in the same way that I think David Lynch how, kind how of mean? courts it in that like this movie, this movie is about dreams. This movie has imagery that I don't doubt was Stanley Kubrick going, Oh, put this Mason thing in here or put this Illuminati reference in here. Mm -hmm. I know that how knowing how controlling he was over like the look and the takes and every aspect of his filmmaking process. He didn't put a fucking double Eagle head thrown in here unintentionally, right. <laughs> but it's not that he's trying. I don't think that his intent was to be like, I mean, who cares what his intent was, but I don't think that he was like, I'm going to fuck with the conspiracy theorists or even be like, or even, you know, trying to reflect a genuine conspiracy. It's like, it's a movie about shit that we're scared of. So yeah. Yeah. like the yeah. same with the shining. It's like, yeah, there's, there's all these pieces that seem like they make sense, but you just can't put them together. That's dreams, baby. Yeah. And he also talks, um, he's, I've, I've, I've heard him talk a lot about movies about like how he directs and, um, and it's, it's, it's very instinctual. Like he, he, he above, above any other director I've read about or seen anything about, um, he doesn't like to talk about his movies with people. Like he doesn't like to explain stuff. He doesn't mm -hmm. like, and part of that, part of that is, is to preserve the movie um, for the viewer, but it's also to preserve uh, his directorial instincts. Like the dude does not want to, mm -hmm. he wants to know when something is right and know when something is wrong based on who he is, but he doesn't want to necessarily mm -hmm. explore the depths of why that is because then maybe, right. maybe you're chipping away at your, at your instincts, um, which I really like. Well, and it's, it's a movie about eroticism mm -hmm. itself. And I would say that if we're going with Kubrick's theory of eroticism, the ambiguity of it is precisely what makes it erotic. So if he were to answer, you know, and he does, I mean, he gives you, like you say, it's fairly clear. It's fairly straightforward. Um, the the conversation I feel that like Nicole and Tom have at the end in the last scene. Yeah. It's basically the movie talking and saying like, this is what this movie was about yeah. when he says, uh, you know, no dream is just a dream. And she says, you know, as sure as I can be of, you know, the reality of a day or a lifetime or whatever. Um, but people seem to want even more than that, which is for him to say, no, it was a dream. <laughs> like, 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 why do you need a definition more clear than that? It just seems so, it does seem obvious to me that the entire point is that constantly vacillating between these two poles of intimacy and anonymity is like the fucking nature of sex. Hmm. Like, and it's not hard to me. Like the movie's pretty, a pretty 
great kind of like visual essay about that. Um, you were kind of touching on the ending a little bit. And mm-hmm. um, I think it's really interesting. Um, apparently Kubrick called it a happy ending. Uh, but I wonder. I think so. I don't know. I kind of wonder for who, though, because, um, you know, isn't and correct me if I'm wrong about anything, but like isn't like Bill's whole odyssey of attempts at infidelity um, are brought on by his it's like his reaction to a dream his wife had. Like she's describing Mm -hmm. a, a sex dream to him and that makes him insecure and jealous and feel like he's got to get that out there and fuck some poontang. Um and then and then the end, that scene, that last scene between him, him and Nicole, which is actually, that's my favorite scene with the two mm-hmm. of them because she is so fucking on fire during that scene. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But um, it, like the end is, is him kind of equating her fantasizing to him taking actual steps to try to fuck, to like realize these, his own fantasies. And then so- I don't, mm-hmm. But like that's but that's what she is telling me in the scene is like her, you know, he's like saying, yes, yes, yes. And she's saying, well, I don't know, uh, but OK. Um, and then in the end, you know. So I, I don't know, is this movie like about male insecurity? Is it is it like about? Um, I think so. I, ha- I think I hate to use I hate to use the term toxic masculinity uh, about a movie t- that's 20 years old. But no. I'm just wondering if. Like, was Kubrick just, like, woke before the rest of us? Well, I feel like it's... I wouldn't say it's about just one, like, that one thing, but I do think... Sure. ...that what sets him off is that he is very comfortable in his vision of her as different... Mm-hmm. You know, he has sexual desires because he's a man. Mm-hmm. Uh, he doesn't He doesn't view her that way, and it's important to her... Well, you can kind of see with how the Hungarian at the, at, at the party, at Sidney Pollock's party toward the beginning... Uh, yeah, he mm-hmm. acknowledges that she's a woman, that she has desires that just because she's married mm-hmm. doesn't mean she wouldn't want to get with him. And I think that kind of sparks in her. She wants Tom Cruise to view her in that way. I think there's something yeah. she likes about that. And so that's why she mm-hmm. when, when they get stoned, she tells him about this uh, naval officer. And, uh, you know, like, you know, basically to say, like, see, I do have desire. Like, I would have thrown everything away uh, just for, mm-hmm. you know, you know, one night with him and. And I think it really shakes him up a lot. I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, you can that uh, that scene. Yeah, you can really see on his face. He's just devastated because what mm-hmm. he saw her as is totally he's you know, he's had her wrong all this time. Right. Um, and so I think the movie is him. His journey is he's trying to. It's not that he wants revenge or he's he's out to get her. He just he, he feels no. that she's betrayed him. And he as he, he kind of says that the reason that he hasn't betrayed her is because they're married and he trusts her. He has faith in her. Mm -hmm. And so when that's shaken, I think he kind of loses his faith in the marriage a little bit. And Mm -hmm. he he thinks it, I I guess it's not revenge so much as maybe lashing out at her to go do these things. And like, and on top of that, you know, in the, in the, the movie is kind of surreal, I guess, and at points, but you know, it's very easy. Like every person he encounters almost in this film, is like throwing themselves at him. Uh, so mm-hmm. he's constantly tempted and, you know, he's kind of in this point where he's weak and he's kind of, I don't know if he's letting his guard down or if he's actually, he's pretty much out there pursuing infidelity uh, because, you know, he's trying to kind of react to what Nicole is 
you know, she's provoked him and all this kind of thing. But uh, so, yeah, I, I view it more as not, not necessarily that the film is about him as like a toxic male or um, just, you know, oh, aren't men so insecure? It's just kind of him coming to terms with mm-hmm. this this kind of shakeup. And then, you know, I do I, I would say it's a happy ending as well, just with he gets through it. He survives. You know, he almost he could have contracted HIV. He could have been killed mm-hmm. by this like secret society. Uh, he's 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 had some real close brushes with trouble and mm-hmm. the consequences of infidelity. And you know, at the end, they're out there Christmas shopping with their child, and um, you know, it's uh, he they've survived. They, I think that's what she says. Like, yeah, you know, what should we do now? And we she should says, be grateful. Like, yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, I think it's a very optimistic ending. And like, I think the uh, one other she, thing, she, and she and she kind of comes. She kind of comes. She has like a. She's the one with like the clear path forward, and he kind of seems like he's at her mercy a little bit. I yeah. think he's rely. I think he relies on her a lot because she is far. She is more advanced than he is. Like yes. she's because what? So first of all, I want to say, I think that that it is ambiguous as to whether he has actually in waking life pursued uh, infidelity at all. I don't believe that most of what happens to him actually happens outside of his own dreams why why do you think that i I don't even think that you're wrong because the movie is so dreamlike but Mm -hmm. but i i I guess i just like most people when they have a dream they don't spend the neck the following two days like driving to the locations that shit happened but that might be a dream too i don't let me let me say this can i say this before we like get into that whole thing Yeah. yeah so i feel like what makes the reason that it's a happy ending is that they're different. They're better off than they were when they started. I think what pisses her off in that bedroom scene when he says, you know, you're my wife or you're a beautiful woman, those kinds of things is he implies that the reason that he is faithful to her is because they are married. And the reason that she's faithful to him is because they are married in meaning like, they are they don't even they don't experience temptation. He is willfully ignorant to her um, eroticism and he's will, willfully ignorant to his own eroticism. As she points out when he talks, when she says, you know, you grope women's breasts all day. <laughs> like, And he's like, no, that means I, of course not. I'm a freaking doctor. Um, like his air of respectability um, turns the fidelity that they owe to each other into kind of a matter of fact, as opposed to something that they have to fight to preserve every day of their marriage. And in some ways, I think that that renders it less meaningful than it actually is. If you acknowledge the fact that you do, that you are tempted at times to stray away from it. And it's just untruthful. Um, So he's, you know, his faithfulness to her is not as strong as it could be because it's born of a willful blindness to who she actually is and who he actually is. By the end of the movie, they've both learned who they actually are and who each other actually is, and they're still choosing to be together. My favorite line of the movie is when, is in that end scene when she's, when he's like, I think she says, it's after she says, I love you, I do love you. And he says something like forever, 
like he's like, I'd love you too forever. And she's like, let's not, <laughs> let's not say forever. Yeah. Cause we, the truth is we don't fucking know. And going forward being like every day we're together is a day that one of us could cheat on the other, or you could get HIV or we could destroy our family. And instead we're doing our damnedest not to do that. And that yeah. that is more romantic ultimately than yeah. just by default because you're married, you don't fuck other people. Yeah. 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 I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and that's like the name of the movie is Eyes Wide Shut, which is what he's, how he's going through life. And then she says, we're awake now. Like we both know that this is true. And that's not comfortable necessarily, but it is maybe better than it was before. Okay. I agree. It's a happy ending. <laughs> it's just it's just it's just not a happy ending in the way we think of happy endings uh but it is a, it is a good it is a good one well you had made a comment that you think she's i think you said she's more advanced than him mm-hmm. but i mean do you feel that she has psychological not necessarily issues but i mean do you think that she has kind of hang-ups or things that she's working through throughout the film as well or do you feel like kind of she brings them to her level by the end of the film and that she's, I think it's hard. I think it's harder to say because we don't spend very much time with her, Yeah, you know? Um, and in a way, like I said, she's to me, she's kind of like the thing that propels him, you know, right. As opposed to as fully realized the character herself, though, not in a like Stanley Kubrick is misogynist kind of way. I think she has like tons of agency. I think also like I was reading something that was talking about, or suggesting that maybe her extreme truthfulness, at least the way, you know, I don't know if she's been like that before the kind of inciting incident of the party, but after the party, she's like, she's not holding anything back from him, really. She's like, like the, I love, like when she wakes up from her nightmare and she's crying and she's saying like, you know, I was fucking so many guys and I wanted to make fun of you, like and laugh in your face. And it's like, the, the thing I went that the essay that I was you know watching was like maybe that maybe she shouldn't be saying this to her husband but I in my own relationship fall on the side of like say I want someone to know everything about me and I want to know everything about them and I think part of the movie's point is like the more intimacy you have with someone the harder it is to maintain them as like an erotic object but in general i tend to i like the fact that she tells him i was i wanted to laugh in your face and i totally i totally like i totally understood maybe not that specific thing but like i totally got that i totally got that feeling of um and you and i kid have talked about this before Mm -hmm. about like the ability to really, really love somebody sometimes hinges on the fact that you kind of hate them a little bit. Uh-huh. Um, and so I felt like that, that rang, like that's not a thing that I feel like we really see like mm-hmm. manifested in movies in right. a real way. And I feel like even though I <laughs> like, maybe she shouldn't have said that the way she said it. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe there is a, maybe there, there, and I think there's a lot of lines like that where yeah. it's like, it's like, well, I don't know if if this person would actually say this or if they would just hide it inside themselves. But mm-hmm. as as I think these two people serve as representations for mm-hmm. the rest of us, I think it makes perfect sense that they say it and the right. lines feel true. 
Um, well, and I think she doesn't have feelings that complex about the guys, she, the strangers she wants to fuck. Like, it yeah. is emblematic of how much she loves him and how much more profound her feelings for him are that mm -hmm. she feels conflicted about him. She doesn't feel conflicted about the Navy officer. She's just like, I want to fuck him and then never see him again. But with, like, again, I think there's something more, like, it's romantic in a way that she, that it even, it's romantic in a way that he's even there in her dream where she's fucking other guys. <laughs> like, and that she regards it as a nightmare because a very large part of herself doesn't want to do that to him. Yeah. You know, even as she's saying, I wanted to laugh in your face, she's crying because she doesn't want to do that because she loves him. And that would be a monstrous thing to do. Um, but I, I personally, like, t you know, tend to fall on the side of, I want to know that stuff. I want to, you know, right. I want Lee to tell me he hates me if he's feeling that as opposed to just think it and never say it. I think my, I guess what I would say, I feel like her flaw is, you know, like his, his has to do with insecurity and just kind mm -hmm. of this false conception of who she is. He's not really seeing her full person. I feel like with her, you know, she's so cruel to him in the marijuana scene at the start. And then in that scene where she's describing her dream, there's like, mm -hmm. and like, you know, it is, it is kind of like, you're kind of maybe describing it more as like brutal honesty, but I feel like she, I, I guess I feel like she's that blunt because she doesn't have, um, kind of a self-awareness of like, I, I need you to see me a certain way. You know, it's important to me that you see me this way. Um, but rather than convey that, you know, in more direct words, she, mm -hmm. she kind of draws him into this, this argument and she kind of, you know, I, mm -hmm. and I think it's not that she's a, a cruel person. I think that she's working through, she's working through her psychology or she's working through her, mm -hmm. her, her thoughts uh, in that way. And then he goes and works through his, his, his response mm -hmm. in his own way. But yeah, I guess I was curious. I, I feel like well, they're both I, working I think through. you're right. Yeah. Okay. I think like, and certainly that is like the critique that a therapist would make of me. I'm sure <laughs> at the same time, you know, in the way that I treat the stuff that it's like, there is, um, I think sometimes when I feel as I feel like I've talked about this with Andrew as well, but I'm not sure where it's like I can either keep my mouth shut or I can tell you exactly what I think with with no filter. And both are scary. <laughs> right. Well, because there's no when you're not very practiced at expressing your feelings or you're or, or you're worried all the time about hurting people with just by being yourself, mm -hmm. then. I think it's you you haven't developed like a uh, a way to say things that isn't just it's like, OK, I can either turn it off or I can turn it on. I can't like find a middle ground where I'm telling you the truth, but in a kind way or in a less uh, harsh <laughs> way. I mean, yeah. you can you can get that. So maybe that's what she's working on. It's like, but I don't know. Maybe the movie's saying like she shouldn't be telling him this. I definitely think. She should be telling him this because I guess I think if he saw this in the right way, I always think it's better to know the truth than live a lie. Like yeah. I've always said this to Lee. If you cheated on me, the thing that would end our marriage would not be you cheating. It would be you not telling me 
immediately. I think if you told me immediately, we could get past it. If I found out, then I don't that I don't think I could get past. Like dishonesty is to me the bigger betrayal. Yeah. Um than just fucking up as a as a human being. Um and so yeah, I I think I don't see her as as flawed because she's living life the way that I in a way that looks good to me. <laughs> um, but wow. obviously I see his face and Lee relates way more to Tom and I, you know, I don't want Tom Cruise to be sad. So <laughs> like, like I under, I understand, I empathize with him that it's devastating for him. And like I said, I don't, that's part of, that's another reason, Andrew, that like, whether it's a dream or not, I'm not scandalized by the things he goes out and does really. Like I under, I understand his reaction too um even though it it's a little bit if he's really doing it then it's pretty like immature but (laughs) but i understand well even even if it's not a dream like like i think those kinds of conquests exist within our dreams anyway so i'm not even sure if it really matters well and he doesn't do anything i mean no well he kisses kisses a lady but um you know, she was also like openly. I mean, is there really is what he does? Let's say in the instance that he kisses somebody, is that worse than her at the party with that dude, or are either of them that bad to begin with? I don't know. Like, <laughs> like no, I feel no, like they're I, on I pretty even. I think they're on pretty even ground. Yeah. Um, no, I wouldn't it, say either of these characters is like reprehensible or I wouldn't say either of them is so far in the wrong. Um, and I think that makes it really mm-hmm. interesting and actually a much better movie. Like yeah. it, it leaves room for everybody to kind of relate to a character. Maybe. Right. You know what I think is interesting? Um, or one thing that I kind of wanted to talk about a little bit. Hmm. Um, you mentioned at the beginning of the episode, you were talking about the, uh, it being the record holder for the longest shoot at, I think mm-hmm. it was 400, 400 days. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of I wonder about uh, these directors like him and, and Fincher, maybe to a lesser extent with all of their takes. Like, I really wonder how necessary that many takes is um, mm-hmm. and 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 how many of those takes are actually bringing yeah. something new to the material or how many are used just to. Yeah, break that's down what I wanted to know is like. More what and more. Percent, what percentage of the time is he using like the last take they did or one of the last takes that they did? Right. And you'd probably you like you'd have to watch every unused take in order to like actually know if it was worth it. I mean, I think it's hard to argue with the final product, but at the same time, like I, but one thing this does remind me of um, uh, it reminds me of Nicholas Meyer's director direction of William Shatner's performance in Wrath of Khan. Um mm-hmm. Uh, oddly enough, because I know that like when he was directing that movie, he had a lot of trouble with Shatner, like putting on a lot of like of his like mm-hmm. Kirk, Shatnerist. Yeah, his Kirk bravado. Um, and uh, and so what he did is he just did takes over and over and over again until Shatner got so tired, like physically exhausted <laughs> that he actually that he actually started acting. And uh, and like in my opinion, that's that is. The, the Shatner was never, never that good prior or since. Um, and I do think of in, in some ways, like I do think of like Tom Cruise's, like his movie star 
his movie starness, his his cruisiness, like mm-hmm. you know the very specific Tom Cruise thing that he does when somebody isn't like kind of trying to use it or get around it. Like like I think Jerry Maguire is a really good example of Tom Cruise just being Tom Cruise. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I kind of think like I kind of think they're not so dissimilar in, in that way. But then also another thing I was thinking about is like um, is like Lawrence Olivier making fun of Dustin Hoffman when yeah. they're making Marathon Man. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I don't have to show up. I don't have to deprive myself of sleep because I can just show up to the set and act. And mm-hmm. it's and so, you know, I, I, I don't have necessarily a grand point or an answer, mm-hmm. but I just I just really kind of wonder uh, about, you know, at what point is this abuse? And then um, at what point does it does it even matter that you've hired, you know, actors anymore? Mm-hmm. Um you know, I, I I don't I don't actually know. I mean, I know that most of Stanley Kubrick's movies are really really good, but um, I don't know how necessary it all was. Um, yeah, I'm I mean, I've heard if- the only from what I remember, and I haven't necessarily, you know, gone real deep into all the behind the scenes stuff. Uh, the only actor I've heard complain about being worn down and like feeling abused by Stanley Kubrick was uh, Shelley Duvall in the shining. Um, I think Nicholson made a comment about maybe being kind of irritated uh, about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mm-hmm. in the special features for the eyes wide shut there were, they were on the Blu-ray uh, Cruz and Kidman both seemed to understand that. I think Kidman sp- uh, specifically said he films it again. He, you know, have you do a, a take again and again and again until he sees something that is some kind of like, you know, glimmer or some kind of aha Mm -hmm. moment or detail. Um, So, yeah, I guess it would really depend on the actor. I didn't get the, you know, and it could have just been that they're doing all these press junkets just months after he's passed away. So they're not going to speak ill of the dead. I think they wouldn't speak ill of him either. But I do think like Tom Cruise has said in a couple of different interviews that it was extremely tiring. Like he's never going to say anything remotely negative about Stanley Kubrick, but he can't hide the fact that it was exhausting. Yeah. Um, And I think, you know, Nicole Kidman more so than Tom Cruise even is, I mean, she works with Lars von Trier and like she, I mean, I think she is like a gymnast of acting and up for a lot of different kinds of experiences. Mm -hmm. Um, Actually. Yeah. That's a good point. Both of these actors are famous for endurance. (laughs) Like whether it's jumping out of a plane or being directed by Lars von Trier. (laughs) Right. But I also, I also think like they had the kind of power that like Stanley Kubrick's going to not, not going to not make them do a bunch of takes, but he's not going to treat them like shit during the shoot. I think, I don't think Shelly Duvall had the same kind of like, she doesn't look like Nicole Kidman. She's not at, she wasn't at the same level level of her career as Nicole Kidman was at this time. She wasn't Mm -hmm. married to Jack Nicholson. Like Jack Nicholson, you know, has three Oscars though. He didn't at this point, but it's just like, it's, I think, and you know, Shelley Duvall's mentally ill. So I think it's definitely possible that well and then also on eyes wide shut like i don't know if you guys know this but um harvey keitel was in the sydney pollock role mm-hmm. and he quit the movie yeah um because he said he ref- he said he said uh stanley kubrick is a genius but he disrespected me and i refuse to be mm-hmm. disrespected by anyone yeah. and i don't know how much of that is harvey keitel's ego or stanley kubrick's ego or both or whatever 
Um, but maybe maybe there's a you know maybe especially at this point in Kubrick's career, like the people who are working with him have to kind of be willing to go on mm -hmm. a difficult journey. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, and or they. Yeah. I don't know. I think. I think just because, because he didn't abuse Nicole and Tom, and also the same people read the same or different people read the same environment as abusive. Yeah. And if they're not necessarily wrong, but I think, you know, it's definitely possible if that's that a director would, especially someone like Kubrick, who's such a perfectionist, would would realize someone's weakness and exploit it you know yeah and he didn't find that same weakness but i mean even tom cruise even said like this was obviously before they actually got divorced irl but he was like i think if we'd been making this movie earlier in our in our marriage it probably would have broken us up so like i don't think it was an easy movie to make yeah no well it's in, it's interesting too like because there's there's sort of like these two sides to kubrick there's like there's like Kubrick the dictator, which I think a lot of people tend to like. I've I've seen as 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 often as I've seen people talk about him being kind of overly controlling or maniacal or whatever. It people go the the opposite direction with him, and and I know that like um mm -hmm. like the the screenwriter for this movie was of like parted ways from the movie, and like I I mean I think he has a credit still, but like Stanley is was ultimately the guy who finished writing the movie. Um, and so, you know, it, it seems, and it seems like that is the case, uh, for like a, a great many screenwriters he's worked with. Like, it seemed like he kind of thinks as of screenwriters as like plumbers, mm -hmm. which is sort of weird to me. Um, but then he sort of regards, you know, I, you know, I don't know if it's like a, it's like an above the line, below the line thing because he he, you know, when he was working with Spielberg on AI, um, like it started out as him just sharing, like storyboards and getting his thoughts on things, and then he started, um, then he you know he suggested what if you direct and I produce, and then he would just he would truly collaborate with Spielberg, like he would say what would you do. Uh, in this situation, and Spielberg would say, and then Spielberg, and then Kubrick would say, "Well, what I would do in this situation is this," and then they would go. So there's like a true back and forth. So he seems like um, he seem for for every bit that he seems uncompromising, he's also like he also seems to be sucking up as many good ideas as he possibly can. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I don't know. It's 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 interesting, but it just seems like there's these two takes and I don't know if it has to do with how Kub how Kubrick treated different people or how different people reacted to him. It's probably both, I think. And I mean I think it <clears throat> I I think every I mean he wouldn't be the only person who treats people differently based on the what they have to offer him or how much power they have or how, you know, how respected they are by other people. I think everyone is like that to a degree. I think, you know, Nicole Kidman wasn't flying to Stanley Kubrick's house to talk about the movie with him. It was Tom Cruise. Like, and yeah. that is probably uh, both maybe Stanley Kubrick's choice, maybe Tom Cruise's choice, maybe also Nicole Kidman's choice. Like, it's just, um, I, I don't, I, my, my feeling about Kubrick is that the quality of the films 
let's say 99% of the quality of his films does not come from the ways in which he is a tyrant. You know, it doesn't yeah. come from the insane number of takes or the like insane amount of control over, you know, certain little details. I think it just comes from like, he's a good director. He hires the right people. The environment could be a much more pleasant one than it is. And the quality of the film would not suffer. That's my thinking. Um, but I'm maybe I'm wrong. I've never made a movie. <laughs> yeah. It's, 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 in, it's interesting too, because like his relationship with some of the people that he works with, like I, I I I don't know if Mike you've maybe have seen Stanley Kubrick a life in pictures um yeah but if uh but like there's that whole section with Malcolm McDowell talking about how like when they made um a clockwork orange like he became like best friends with Stanley Kubrick mm -hmm. like he was going over to his house every day and talking to him on the phone all the time and um and 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 he was like Malcolm McDowell was like coming to the editing room and they would play ping pong every single day. And then the day the movie officially wrapped, he like never heard from Stanley Kubrick again. Yeah. yeah. And was like super hurt. So there's. And maybe that didn't happen to Tom Cruise because he died. Because Tom Cruise was talking about in the same way of like, yeah, yeah. he was, I wasn't, I loved him. He was my best friend for a while. And then he died six days later. So he never, Tom Cruise never found out whether he would have still gotten to be friends <laughs> with, with Stanley Kubrick. Right. And, and like he had a, you know, he had, relationships with a few filmmakers i mean he like he had a like i was talking about his relationship with spielberg a little bit like they you know spielberg says like oh we i would see him every time i could um not often enough and then i would all but we would talk on the phone for like hours and hours and hours and, mm -hmm. I, and I wonder too if that's you know i think maybe this is going to sound worse than i mean it but like maybe the dude's just a little bit of a user you know like he uses the people that which is not necessarily a bad thing, but like he's using the people, um, you know, he used Malcolm McDowell in the editing room because it, you know, it was part of his mojo. It was, mm -hmm. uh, and, and maybe he's, you know, talking to Spielberg for, you know, over the course of 20 years um, on the phone every six months for six hours at a time or whatever, because, mm -hmm. you know, that's, he's, he's, you know, he's learning, he's soaking up, you know, what's new in filmmaking. I know that like he, um, he, he got like, all, like all of his like technology he got from Spielberg, like Spielberg would talk about like what new piece of shit he was mm -hmm. using to make movies and Stanley would get one. Like, uh, mm -hmm. I know that like he, like when compute, when the, when they started doing like, um, computer playback, like Stanley would like Spielberg told him about like how to, you know, basically set up like a bunch of monitors so that you could watch, you know, a bunch of takes at the exact same time. And that's mm -hmm. like, that's how he edited, uh, eyes wide shut. So, you know, there's a sense of him always like getting something from right. the relationships that he's cultivating. And that doesn't necessarily mean that those relationships are false really, yeah, but that's maybe the way he is. That, that's the way he well, is. That's also, that's the nature of the film industry. You, you're going to work with these people extremely closely for maybe, I don't know, yes. two, three, mm -hmm. maybe six months, uh, 400 days, I guess if you're on a Stanley Kubrick film, but you know, <laughs> it might, it might not have been something personal against Malcolm McDowell. It may have just been, they weren't in close proximity anymore or, you know, I think, I, I think it is probably the case that that's how Stanley Kubrick 
saw it. But I don't think that that means that, like, Malcolm McDowell doesn't have reason to be upset about sure. that. Sure, no, like, not you, at all. You know, there's no. other there's other filmmakers like the Coen Brothers maintain relationship. I mean, they're married to people in their movie. <laughs> like they yeah. like want to work with like the same that. But that is, I guess, it doesn't mean that. Like, yeah, Kubrick's allowed to work like that, but it's also, you know, I think one can be critical. That there, that for there, sure. No, it, yeah, I'd... there are ways and there's are there are ways in which that is a little bit inhumane. I also think like, I think like Nicole Kidman is a, is a fantastic actress. I think she's amazing in this movie. I was saying to Lee, like, you know, of what I've seen of her career, I don't know that she's ever been given better words to say like the kinds of things she gets to say in this movie are like that would be my dream as an actress <laughs> like she has such amazing dialogue written for her however is is Nicole Kidman better in this than she is in other things that she's in you know like is she like is she, or is she like demonstrably better in this than in other things is Tom Cruise. Like you say, like, I think there's maybe some, on the one hand, I think you're right that maybe the multiple takes kind of break down the, the movie starriness of Tom. But I also wrote down, like, I feel like this guy is the close is the most like Tom Cruise of any character he's ever played. Interesting. (laughs) Like like the most like IRL Tom Cruise. I'm just like, like you kind of, you can't say that the multiple, that the, crazy number of takes doesn't work because us a, a Kubrick movies are always really good but it's not so, it's also not like there's a ton of evidence that they are working either because it's like right. Nicole Kidman's not terrible in everything and then amazing in this Stanley Kubrick movie well maybe yeah. that's maybe that's maybe that's the problem with you know never um exploring the reasoning behind your instincts like he had them fucking sleeping in that set Right. Like that was they yeah. lived they lived in that room. Um, and, you know, so maybe maybe that's so, you know, maybe he never truly um, got to gain a true understanding mm-hmm. of well, why he was moving on to the next take or or why he was on take 500 or whatever. But maybe that's why he made good movies until he died. Well, and like you say, Shatner, like Shatner is not really a good actor, but he's great in Wrath of Khan. And that would potentially be evidence that that method worked really well for Shatner. But Nicole Kidman is not William Shatner. That's <laughs> like, true. Maybe That's you true. just h- hired a great actress and she doesn't have to do it 55 times. And I don't know, maybe maybe, maybe he just likes making movies that much. <laughs> well, there was yeah. a comment that he, uh, well, I think, I think Tom Cruise, no, no, it was Sidney Pollack. Um, he said that he had talked to Kubrick about the multiple takes at one point and that Kubrick said he just finds it silly that, you know, you might spend years writing a film. You may spend months to a year in Mm -hmm. pre-production, building the sets, you know, spending Mm -hmm. all this money, taking all this time, and then you do five takes and you're done. So I I relate to that. What's that? I relate to that because, like, I feel that way about vocals. Like, people, when we record vocals, I always want to sing it. Like, let me sing it until my voice doesn't work anymore. Yeah. Because, for one thing, like you say, like, we've put all this work into all this other stuff. And then, arguably, the most important fucking part of the song, we're just going to, like, because it can be kind of uncomfortable for people yeah. <laughs> to sit around watching a person sing or for the person singing, we should not 
you know, make sure that we get what we need. Yeah. So which is very Kubrickian of me. <laughs> um, but also because there is, I think, sometimes, not always, like depending on the song, depending on the melody, depending on who, whose voice it is. You know, you sing something a couple of times and then you start maybe to be thinking less about what you're doing or or, you know, there if it's if it's I mean, I I guess my thinking, though, is like that's mostly true for extremely emotional songs. And I feel like it would be true for extremely emotional scenes as well, where like if you're nervous about something or if something is intimate or you feel like you're being exposed, then I can kind of more easily see the logic of like, do this a bunch of times until you're comfortable with it or until you've broken down whatever your like um, self-awareness is, you know, stuff like that. To, so, and then maybe you'll get something raw or in the end, but when it's literally just like sitting in the kitchen, <laughs> like drinking a cup of coffee, like what are we going to get? That's really different here. Yeah. You know, one thing one thing I wanted to bring up cuz we're talking about, you know, his like obsessive control over the movie, but it's so crazy to me that Kubrick was so like like had his, you know, had a death grip around his movie, but then like wouldn't leave London to shoot like the and like a big I mean this movie takes place in New York and like <laughs> like the the scenes of Tom walking down the street any shot where Tom Cruise is walking down the street at night towards camera. It's rear projected. That's rear projected. What the fuck? I get like, it. The, but the amount of what you, you get it. Yeah. I, I, it's why all the shits on backlots too. I mean, other than just Stanley Kubrick, I guess not wanting to fly, which is, which that is fucking silly. I agree. But I do think he justifies it. That's how come it's a dream y'all. <laughs> like, wow, but, but 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 then the other but then other shots other shots in the same sequence are shot on on a stage like so like it's weird to me that like a profile shot in that sequence is on a is on a set and then just the shots of him walking towards camera mm -hmm. are so I don't totally understand that choice. I, I agree, um, but I, I think it's 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 kind of a I don't know a heightened reality or a. A sort of a strange kind of reality. It's not well, supposed I, it's to be, be the real streets of New it, York. It's because he didn't want to fly. I mean, I think the reason that it's not shot on location is because he didn't want to fly. I think that that decision in the context of the film becomes something else, regardless of what it was okay. you know, outside the film. And I think within the film, what it does to me is suggest this is not New York. This is not... <laughs> But I think it, well, yeah, I think, I think it already feels like, like, I think, I think the things that you're saying that it does, it does that already. Like, right, but like it does the fact, them the fact that it's, the fact that it's New York, but like, would you have, I don't know, I don't, but I don't think it looks any different. Like it looks, I, I think it looks as if he's there. Um, like, I don't, I think if you, if you, if you pulled the camera away and there was lights and a couple of gaffers, like, and they're on a, on a studio lot, like I would not be surprised. I um, think this, the scene where the guy is like following him yeah. to me, that doesn't look like real streets to me. Like, I mean, it does. See, it but that enough is like but it. That is <laughs> right. But that I think is what is fucking with. I mean, that it sh in a way like demonstrates the effectiveness of the decision. That's like, 
you can't, I mean, so much of what this movie is about is not being able to tell what's real from what's not real. And yeah. then the end in the end being like, we don't get to know and it doesn't really matter. <laughs> and then the way that it's shot and how locations are used totally backs that up. Well, okay, okay. I got one comment and then a question. Um, I okay. think with regard to the rear projection and recreating that little section of Greenwich Village, like on a soundstage, I think yeah, maybe it was he just didn't want to fly. But then there's also like if this is a guy who does, you know, 20 to 100 takes or whatever of, a, of something, you know, it can be really complicated and expensive to coordinate, you know, shooting. on That the is streets. true. Um, that is true. Yeah. And and the part and the part that he's going to reshoot the most is the part where Tom Cruise is walking towards camera. Yeah. And so, so that's a really that's a really good point. Yeah. So that's something to consider. But then the question I have, uh, I guess, for Kit, with what you had just said, I, I think that all of this film is real. I think everything that happens in the film happens within the reality of the film. Is there mm-hmm. are there certain sections that you think are a dream or are not real or? I go. I don't think personally that I'm not saying that the way to watch this movie is trying to figure out what's reality and what's a dream. Okay. Because again, I think that I don't think that I, I wouldn't say like, well, this part is actually happening because, and you can tell because he's tapping the billiard balls on the table, and that's how you know that's real life. <laughs> you know, like I don't, I don't get into that bullshit. I don't care, and I don't think it matters, and I don't think that's the right way to watch the movie, personally. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you won't come to anything from it. Like I don't want to watch this like people watch The Shining. I think that's stupid. Yeah. But I think I fall on this. I do fall on the side of, or at least I watched the movie. feeling, I guess, entertaining the possibility that everything that's happening to him is a dream and seeing it through the lens of it's a dream. I think the dream starts when he gets that phone call, basically. Hmm. Um, And then I think when it ends is harder to say um, and not necessary to say. Uh, But it's like there are a lot of things that happen that the movie, if it's, you know, when she's sleeping with the mask on the pillow, there's no reason for that in the logic of the story. Like, even if she found it, she wouldn't put it there. <laughs> like, I think the idea was she... that the, they had put the mask there while she was sleeping to intimidate yeah. him. Yeah, that's that's how I always but read it. None of that. I, See, but that I think I think if we, you I... make if you take the threat, if you take the threat to their marriage, literally then I think the movie's way less interesting. If he, if if the danger that they that uh, Tom and Nicole are experiencing is from a real like external like mob of crazy sex weirdos, then that is way way less interesting to me than well, if the threat that they experience is from their own erotic lives. I think it's both though. I- 
Yeah, I and, well, hang on, because because I, I agree I agree with you, Kit, and I think and I think Tom I think uh, I think Stanley Kubrick goes out of his way to not make a clear distinction between one or the other, and I think that is uh, specifically on display in the scene in the billiard room with Sidney Pollock because he starts out by I think because he he basically offers Tom Cruise two options right like he he first tries to communicate with him by saying. Oh, you're just you're just interpreting, you know, things you saw and without really understanding what you actually saw. Um, and then, you know, that doesn't really work. So then he tries to scare the shit out of him. So I think I and I think uh, I think with every single detail that happens um, during and after the orgy, I think it could go either way. Like, do we actually know if Nick Nightingale was? you know, picked up and beat up or did he just hit his head somewhere? Do we know if the, the lady from the party, um, had a drug overdose on her own and just coincidentally died or if she was murdered by these dudes after she vouched for him? Um, do we know if Sidney Pollack is the, the, the pole tap dude or whatever? Um, we don't, um, I think we do. And I, and, and I don't, I don't think we do. I think, yeah. So if you look at the newspaper he gets, um, so after he's, he goes over back to Domino's apartment and, uh, her roommate tells uh him that she just found out that morning that she was HIV positive. Um, he goes for a walk and then that guy is following him and he buys a newspaper. The headline Mm -hmm. says lucky to be alive. So, you know, we read that Mm -hmm. as, you know, he's dodged a bullet with HIV. Um, when he's reading that article though, uh, it talks about what happened to a man or to Mandy. And it says that around 4 AM, two men brought her into the hotel. She was giggling. Uh, you know, they, they were supporting her as she came into the hotel. They left. Uh, we, we know from what Alan Cumming told him that at 4 30 AM, Nick Nightingale was, you know, they brought mm. him into the building and then they mm-hmm. checked him out and took him out. So mm-hmm. we have the newspaper corroborating that. But why can't the newspaper be part of it? Be part of what? A dream. I mean, it can, oh, but well, I don't. Well, I don't think there's any place where we really launch into a dream. I think that this all happens. I think it's when he gets the phone call. The, for the the doctor, uh, or for the uh, the patient of his that passed away. For the away. man, the man who's died. Yeah. Just because he comes home later that night doesn't mean that's when the dream ends. Well, I mean, you know, you know, we would kind of have. You, a phone call would be a strange way to signify a dream has begun, I think. Okay. Like, I think in Mulholland Drive, you, you know, we kind of see <laughs> Naomi Watts lay her head down on the pillow. Uh, <laughs> a more tra- I mean, he's he's sitting in bed. Sure, but he's having a conversation with Nicole Kidman and the phone rings. I, I'm not what saying. What do you want? That- what? Like, what? I feel like David Lynch would smack you in the face right now. <laughs> Like what needs to happen? We need to see like, why do you think that the phone call denotes that a dream has begun? Because I think that's when the events begin, which to me represent his unconscious dealing with what he has just learned from Nicole Kidman. The- and I don't think that the things that happened to him past that point correspond to any kind of reality as I understand it. You know, I, I think, think it's also, I don't, I think that, I don't think that Tom Cruise has been going through life having, I mean, okay. (laughs) 
this version of Tom Cruise has not gone through life with women throwing themselves at him constantly, at least in, I mean, it could be the case that this happens to him every day. And, um, and now because he's heard this dream or because he's heard about her dream, he's suddenly realizing that, oh, everyone is horny for him and he could have sex with a lot of different people if he wanted to. Um, but I think that the woman who looks exactly like his wife kissing him while the corpse of her father sits in the room um, maybe corresponds more to a man grappling, you know, internally with uh, the news that his wife is sexually interested in other people. I think it's also because you start all your dreams off with a phone call. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, your phone like, ringing and then everything goes. I think that that is when his journey begins, but I don't view it as... I don't think that the movie becomes more dreamy then than it has been, like when they were at the party. Right, which yeah. is what she says at the end. That that you can't... But Meaning, why are you saying that this is, launches a dream? I mean, to me, it just continues the reality of the film as we've seen it. I'm... I'm saying that the lens through which in the lens through which I viewed the film, which is that the, you know, I think quasi nonsensical (laughs) odyssey he goes on that evening um, and the kind of refracted way through which everything at the orgy corresponds to things that he saw throughout the first half hour of the film, the way that all of the women look and seem in some way to connect back to Nicole Kidman. Um, You know, the whole, all the rainbow bullshit that like, I I think it's like we're, we, we are given the information that comprises his dream in that first half hour. And from that point on, we're seeing those little um, pieces of reality reconstituted in, and in the, reality he creates with his mind while he's dreaming and working through this problem. I don't think that I don't, I, I'm not saying anyone's wrong to not view it that way, right. but I think that it's possible and that you get an interesting read of the film if you do view it that way, which isn't to say you don't get an interesting view of the film if you don't. But I, I find that the film holds together and to me, you know, bears <laughs> narrative fruit uh-huh. <laughs> if you uh, regard his entire experience as in some way a dream or a nightmare uh, triggered by hearing about his wife's uh, imagined infidelities. Right. You know, she tells him a dream. He goes and has one. She doesn't tell him a dream, though. I mean, she's talking about when they were on vacation. Yeah, I guess. But I mean, I don't know. I think it's a fantasy. It's not a real thing that happened. Yes. Right. Right. And I, okay. Yeah. So I agree that the line, you know, especially when we look at like the, the way the film closes that the lines between fantasy and reality and dreams kind of are, you know, they just say like, it's irrelevant. Uh, those, I will mm -hmm. say that I think that the, that the movie, I'm not saying I'm not saying to view it this way is stupid. I think the movie is a lot stupider if it's meant to represent any a reality. I think because like I watch because I watch the orgy and like I said at the beginning of this is like this is like dorky shit. It just feels like it came from the mind of some dork and not like (laughs) 
you know, like uh, it, 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 and it just seems to operate by. I just think he he saw, you know, the, that orgy scene contains a bunch of stuff that he experienced. It seems like at, um, at that the party. party. Yeah, no. And there's even like the same, almost the same Christmas tree in every location. And I know it's Christmas time, but it's just like there's certain images that keep popping up again, and it just feels like. Yeah, that's the logic by which it's operating to me. That's interesting. I I guess I don't feel that that's where a dream starts, but I do agree that there are all those kind of synchronicities from the first half hour of the film mm-hmm. uh, that carry. I don't through. think it. I don't. I don't think any of this matters. No, I agree. I just I was curious yeah. why the phone call. Why Kit thought that that was where that where this this. I just think that that's where his sort of dissociation begins. Okay. That's kind of where his his break happens yeah like i don't mean necessarily that it's like i mean that it's a that it's a traumatic enough event for him from his perspective that you know because it's a movie and it doesn't need to reflect how dreams actually work you know (laughs) we don't need to see him go to sleep we like we saw the important shit that we needed to see. And also because if he went to bed and and it was somehow made clearer to us that he's definitely dreaming, then the movie would also be less interesting. Sure. Like thinking that it's possibly really happening. And also that puts us more into his frame of mind. He's not dreaming this thinking I'm not really visiting a prostitute right now. I mean, part of what I think Nicole Kidman reflects when she, when she talks about her nightmare or her fantasy is like the fear that she experienced from basically experiencing behaving that way, even though she wasn't really doing it. It was as if she was, and that's basically the same almost (laughs) like the feeling of being someone who was going to fuck another guy and laugh in her husband's face is almost as bad as um, actually doing it because, you know, in the dream, you don't know you're not actually doing it. So I think, I just think that's an interesting, I mean, all the questions too of like, well, did he cheat on her? He kissed a lady. He, you know, did all, it's like the film is kind of full of questions of like what infidelity even is, like what constitutes infidelity. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Should we talk about, is there a specific scene? I was thinking we could discuss the mansion. I mean, we could, the only thing that I have really is, um, and, you know, since Kit kind of already started talking about it, was the orgy scene. And I just have a few production notes, really. Okay. Um, uh, I read, I reread, rather, um, the, there's like an oral history of it um, on, I think, I think Vulture did it or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but they basically, they hired like this really great um, dance choreographer and like worked on it for months and months and months and months. And it really seemed like Stanley Kubrick didn't know what he wanted for the scene. And basically they would just do shit and then uh, video it and then send him tapes and he would just give notes back. Um, But like it got more and more like explicit. Um, And I guess, you know, the dancers also got more comfortable with each other. So that was okay to some degree, but like there were, um, they were like losing dancers and they'd have to like get new ones and train them again. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's interesting to me because, uh, they, they kept pushing it further and further back 
in the shoot schedule because it seemed like something that Stanley Kubrick just wasn't really that comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was like his DP or, or somebody would like joke to him and be like, you should get Tony Scott to come in and shoot this. Cause he knows how, um, and you don't. Um, and I do think, I think, I think that this scene is the best evidence for this if this movie was a dream Mm -hmm. because it's so absurd like it's funny to me because I was thinking about it today and the first time I saw this was when I like around the time it came out and that scene was the hottest fucking thing I had ever seen in my entire life (laughs) and watching it today or not today yesterday um I it's it's not remotely sexy um you know there's some nice looking people in it but just like Nobody fucks like that. And, um, and like, I just like, I just kept imagining like if a, if a girl is like coming down that hard on your penor, bro, it is going to snap <laughs> right off. <laughs> like there is zero penetration happening in those shots. Like watch it out remind- for that pelvis. It reminded me of party at Kitty and Stead's a little bit where it's Absolutely. just like people, sl- people with soft penises, like slamming against women's <laughs> thighs. Like that's it's like, what's happening? But you can tell that there's a choreography happening. I think like as soon as, I mean, this is not something that occurred to me until reading the, the thing about, you know, the production of that scene, but it's like, Oh yeah, duh. These are fucking dancers and they are doing mm-hmm. a dance right now. And yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, that that scene has always I, I, I mean, yeah, I think it's extremely iconic. Uh, that seems to be the, the one thing everybody knows about this movie. Um, I guess a few thoughts I had on it. I, the uh, you know, once he's been found out and the fellow in the red robe kind of brings him forward and he's talking to him. Uh, mm-hmm. There's that scene where, you know, the piano music is playing and there's just those like still shots of the people in the masks with all those like, kind of horrified expressions. Yeah. Yeah. I love yeah. that. That is just so scary. Yeah. Um, and the masks were that. Yeah. The masks were really cool. But the whole thing, like the whole thing is scary. Yes. I mean, I don't know. Mine is the perspective of of, of a woman, I guess. But to me, that's mostly I mean, it's 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 funny that that's the scene that this movie is so remembered for and it's remembered as like a sexy, crazy orgy when it's like, I do, I mean, this is, you know, the dog sucking the dude's dick in the shining kind of like, (laughs) you know, like it's not, it's creepy. It's, it's scary. Yeah. Yeah. Like none of this. And it reminded me there was a, there was a quote from a review at the time um, by Lee Siegel where he said uh, on the movie being set at Christmas time, that desire is like Christmas. It always promises more than it delivers. And it's like, <laughs> like, like to- Tom Cruise has been so excited to get to this party in a way that feels a little bit out of character for like the man we've met so far, where he's just like itching to get there. And then he gets there and it's like, ooh. Yeah. <laughs> like not only that, but he still can't get fucked. Like once he's there. <laughs> Well, like, it might be, it might kind of, I don't, I don't think that this was like the intent of the scene, but I'm sure that that kind of mirrors the dismay that some audiences felt when they went to go see this movie that they thought it was going to be all sexy and all this type of thing. And then you get mm-hmm. there and it's just this bizarre, you know, off-putting uh, orgy. And uh, mm-hmm. it, it's certainly not the, you know, the trailer with the Chris Isaac song, uh, right. you know, that's not quite what you think <laughs> you're getting into. Well, 
And everyone sounds like Charlie Brown's teacher. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, I did want to uh, another like, note. Like the reality, I'm glad that they kept the reality of wearing the masks, like as opposed to doing ADR where everyone sounds, per- I mean, it probably is ADR, but I mean, that it really does sound as, like there's a lot of, is there a party down episode that's about an orgy or something <laughs> yeah, where it's so. like the reality of trying to throw an orgy is just like, <laughs> it's just logistics basically yeah. and everything's stupid. Yeah. Which is, it's just a little side note. Like it's, it, it is interesting how that scene in eyes wide shut has like percolated, um, just like into culture, mostly comedy. I feel like, like mm-hmm. I, I was, I was watching the, um, the it's always sunny in Philadelphia episode where 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 Mac or uh, Dennis and Frank go to an orgy and it's like mm-hmm. an eyes wide shut uh, orgy but it's just like gross gross people in masks and yeah. a bu- and there's a buffet <laughs> it's like it's somebody's apartment but they totally use like the Venetian masks that might be the show I'm talking about I don't know maybe that maybe it wasn't no party they did down that they they did oh, okay. the, I think they did do that in Party Down and then um, review. I think Review mm-hmm. also has oh, a, yes, a, yes, yes. a pretty, good, a pretty good orgy. Yeah. It takes place watch- in a mansion and everything. Yeah. I was yeah. just watching something the other day that was like a comedy where they the password to something was Fidelio as like a joke. And I'm like, yeah, okay, this is <laughs> – it really has – but, yeah, it's so – it's also for how long – like the movie's long. And there's it a really lot long. of just like long scenes that are in no hurry to get over. And mm-hmm. that part of it is not – does not feel long. No. Like, no, it's like, it's like, I feel like conservatively, it's like five, five minutes, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very short seat. Like the actual, the actual shots of people fucking is, I, 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 I don't think it could be more than two and a half minutes. Um, one other note from that, that scene, uh, mm-hmm. the, the guy in the red robe, um, it's uh, played by a guy named Leon Vitali, who, uh, was yeah. an assistant to the director. Um, Mm -hmm. and I should have mentioned this earlier, but when you guys were talking about how hard it would be to work with Kubrick or just the stories people told about working with them, uh, that documentary film worker is, uh, it's all about Leon Vitale and it's, gives you a pretty good picture of what it would have been like to be Kubrick's assistant. Uh, Have you, have you seen that, uh, either of you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I haven't, but I want to. Yeah. It's a good, it's a good little movie. It's got some good stuff in it. Cool. Um, Well, and like, isn't one of the theories that like uh Sidney Pollock tapping the balls all the time is supposed to link him to the guy in the red robe. Yeah, I can see that. And yet, and yet Sidney Pollock doesn't play the guy in the red robe and it's not his voice. Yeah. But I still believe that that's Sidney Pollock to the psyche of Tom Cruise <laughs> or the psyche of Bill. <laughs> yeah. 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 Or at least, you know, that he's, he's at, at the very least like sort of proving that he was there um, by like, you know, s- sort of throwing back to the the staff. Like, I don't know if it necessarily means that he was actually red robe guy, although I do agree with you, but I think it, I think it could just be like, and I also just that, like to, to mm-hmm. the viewer connects it also, I think like subconsciously. Yeah. Right. Well, and then that like at the Christmas party, like, he is like just a richer, more powerful version of of Bill in a yeah. way. Like yeah, he's totally. like the next evolution of Bill, and he's the one who like it's interesting. I think I feel like you can see how kind of frightened Bill is of him 
because when they go when he goes and sees him in the pool in the billiard room, mm-hmm. he says like, "Oh, we had such a great time at that party. Like it was such a great party." And it's like it's a party at which you treated a prostitute who had OD'd. Like right. in a in right. a bathroom yeah. with the host of a part of the party who's married, like and and I my understanding is like Tom Cruise. That's not something that happens to him every day. Right. Like that was an extraordinary circumstance. But then he still goes and meets the guy. And he's like, wow, what a great that was such a great party. And it's like you both know what happened, but like that just speaks to me of like the um, <laughs> I don't know the power differential or the fear that you know what what this guy I, and not even. I don't even mean like fear because he was the leader of the orgy because I don't even think it just that I guess that's what makes me think that kind of in some way that's who Tom Cruise was projecting as the leader of the orgy. Hmm. Sure. Yeah. That's interesting. I, uh, I, I guess we're getting close to maybe wrapping this up, but there was one, there was two scenes that I wanted to talk about mm-hmm. or just kind of get your guys' takes on. Uh, the two scenes are when Tom Cruise uh, is investigating what happened to Nick. He goes and he sees Alan coming uh, at the hotel. He's, he's at the front desk at the hotel. And then later mm-hmm. that night when he goes to see Domino's roommate uh, to find out. Well, he goes there because he's pursuing Domino again. But he winds up, winds up finding out about what happened to Domino. Both of those scenes, you know, one takes place during the day. One takes place during the night. I think there's a lot of day mirroring night in this movie kind of back and forth but both of those scenes uh the person that tom cruise is talking to is like extremely into him very very flirtatious Mm -hmm. just like you know practically like drooling over him but then in both of those scenes uh each person reveals like a really something very disturbing that's happened whether it's you Mm -hmm. know my roommate is hiv positive or oh hey now that you mention it there was something unusual about when nick nightingale checked out this morning he was dragged Mm -hmm. out by two men uh we have with a bruise (laughs) on his face so like those uh i guess watching it this time those scenes hadn't necessarily stuck out to me before but watching it this time you know even though it's kind of in this like waking dream reality that we've been talking about like you know whether it's dreamlike or however we're describing it like how, how did those scenes like sit with you guys? Was that just distracting or did you just roll with it or? It just felt, it felt very David Lynchy to me. Yeah. Like that's how I, that's how I thought of it where it's like, it's not a conversation that would ever happen Yeah. in real life, but yeah. it is something that would happen <laughs> in a dream where like, and also I guess if maybe if you're someone who's trying to control the sexual potential of a, of a situation, like, if I'm to the extent that I'm correct and this adventure repre- is, is in some way being controlled by Bill himself, like Bill doesn't want to have sex with somebody else. <laughs> like he keeps trying to, he keeps coming across ample, ample opportunities to do so, but something happens. Um, for instance, I believe in the scene with Domino, a phone rings and that's why he doesn't get to have sex with her. Right. Yeah. Nicole yeah he says his wife called. Yeah. Right. So, and then it's like, he meets that her roommate and it's like, yeah, obviously they could fuck right now. And then, and then, but like he gets himself out of that by having her say, Oh, she had H, she has HIV. And then it's like, well, that mood is dead. Yeah. Um, 
So that's kind of how I saw them as more just part of like the dream logic that saves him from having to like coming with, he keeps coming to these narrow miss, narrowly missing having sex with someone other than his wife and thereby endangering his entire life. Uh-huh. How about you, Andrew? Hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's perfectly fine if you had no thoughts on those scenes. I just rewatching it. Like when I was taking notes, I was like, this is bizarre. Like, you know, cause it is bizarre. And it's, it's, it's sort of similar to the scene at the beginning with the girl and her dead dad. Like she starts making out with him. Uh-huh. while the dudes just like getting cold 10 feet away. Um, and yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know that I have any thoughts. Okay. I think, I think, I think I agree with Kit. <laughs> <laughs> well, surprise, like surprise. She made some good points. That's yeah. what I mean. Like all these scenarios, all these scenarios, including even when he goes upstairs with Domino, like there's really nothing. What we know about Bill so far does not suggest that that is something he would do. Right. Just like meet a girl on the street and then be like, you want to come upstairs? It's like, OK. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's weird. Yeah. Yeah. I well, agree. You know, it's and, a movie with a lot of weird, bizarre stuff in it. But I guess those mm-hmm. those and, two chunks. And, and then. But then also, if, if he was willing to go upstairs, like, why was he unwilling to have sex with her after Nicole called? Like, I don't. I mean, it would. I, I, I If he was on the kill fence, his boner. I mean, yeah, it might it might just be that last reminder he needs, <clears throat> you know, that you're you're really messing up. Here. But then he doesn't go home. That's true. No, yeah, the, that's true. The, the, the apartment being that messy is what would stop me. That's fair. See that I had that, that with I, Vanessa Shaw. It was gross. <laughs> It was it was a little gross. Hey, what else is she in? Also, she had a, there's a bathtub she was in, Hocus in the Pocus. kitchen. Oh, that's it. I was going to say, I just saw her in something Vanessa recently. Shaw. Also, oh Corky Roma- also Corky Romano. Also Ladybugs, if you guys have seen that. I have seen Ladybugs. That's one of Sarah's favorite films. Wow. <laughs> that's a creepy one to get into. <laughs> there's a scene. In, well, yeah, we'll talk about this off the, the podcast. <laughs> um, okay. So um, one other note that I just have to mention. Uh, I know we're getting pretty far into it but the scene with mandy in the morgue when mm-hmm. he goes to visit her i think mm-hmm. i don't know what they did but that is the stillest corpse that i have ever seen in a film uh like i was watching you know she's fully naked mm. she has there's no breathing her ribs aren't expanding at all sometimes you can even see like a person's heart beating kind of through their you mm-hmm. know through their mm-hmm. belly there's nothing moving and i kind of wondered if it was a mat shot uh with the way that it's with the way that you see her, like he's kind of looking over her or looming over her, I guess. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know if I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't notice that there was a commentary or anything, but I was very curious if you guys had heard anything like how they did that or uh, if it looked, cause maybe, it didn't look like a dummy. Maybe he killed her. <laughs> well, it's funny. I, I was watching that abyss scene uh, last night. And you can fully tell that Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio is not is breathing like before yes. she's supposed to be breathing. It really you can you can see that she's a live woman, <laughs> and, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah, you can always tell in a movie this, like I, there's I, some expansion. I, of the yeah. ribs or... I didn't really notice it here that she seemed particularly dead because I was mostly just watching Tom Cruise. I think he's really good yeah. in that part of the film. He, yeah, he is. Um, but yeah. It's I was, I was trying it. to I was to trying to compare <laughs> I was trying to compare her uh, nipples to the girl at the 
or G so that I could yeah. be sure that they were the same girl. <laughs> I had a really hard time knowing like who was as usual. Like, is Mandy supposed to be like which who's supposed to be the same girl or like yeah, which which like beautiful tall woman this is yeah. who's dead now? <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> um. Okay. Well, I think that's most of everything I've got. Uh, cruise minute. Cruise minute. Um. Christmas lights, rear projection. Okay, cool. So yeah, let's uh, let's do our cruise minute. Uh, I will let either one of you handle this because I don't know. Uh, I'm gonna go first. Go for okay. it. Okay. I have I have I have two things. I'm gonna be very fast. The first thing is I laughed every time uh, Tom Cruise took out his medical license. Yes. <laughs> I thought that I'm was the doctor. A, yeah. Great gag. I love yeah. I love I love little things like that from like yeah. really um, like like incredible filmmakers who are make very serious movies and then just, just give me something to know that they don't take themselves absolutely 100% seriously. And that this movie is like, has to be, uh, you know, a piece of stone. So anyway, I loved that. And it was, it was very funny. Um, second thing is, uh, it's, um, it's about, uh, steady, the steady cam operator. Um, So he tells this story, which was, you know, Stanley's precision was the thing I remember the most. I had three lasers on the Steadicam pointed to the ground, and when they all lined up, a grip would drop a plumb line from a string from the lens. Then I'd line my lasers up, and then the grip would talk me into the mark, saying I was two inches, one inch on the mark. That level of precision was considered exceptional. You'd very rarely do less than 20 takes. So physically and intellectually, intellectually, it was demanding. And very often, Stanley would say to me that I wasn't on my mark. I'd look down. I had my, las- my three lasers. And so I'd say, well, I am on the mark, Stanley. And one time, Tom Cruise whispered to me, just move the camera, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, realized, I realized it was just code for, for saying that Stanley wanted me to put the camera in a different place. <laughs> So I, lo- I love that because I could totally I could totally see that like Stanley mm-hmm. Kubrick not wanting to admit that, you know, he wanted something new and that actually everyone else is screwing up. And the mm-hmm. Steadicam operator, you know, mm-hmm. under incredible stress, um, it's just like absolutely exhausted, not wanting to, you know, give in to a tyrannical director and Tom Cruise mm-hmm. just being like, come on, dude, <laughs> just move the camera. figure it out. <laughs> yeah, just that's move funny. the camera. <laughs> anyway, that's it. Um, excellent. Um, I have two. I have two things as well, real okay. quick. One was I really did not like that scene where he gets bullied by those street toughs. That it was, was rough. It that was, was rough. really hard to see him not kick their ass. Yeah, or yeah. just like, just oh, that was really tough. Um, I also have a theory that so when they're smoking weed, mm-hmm. I feel like they could not show Tom. Like he takes the the doobie from her at one point and they then you don't see him smoke it and i have to think that's because either he wouldn't do it or it looked too weird when he pretended to i bet it's the i bet it's the latter because i have a really (laughs) fucking hard time believing that tom cruise who spent two years of his life on this movie uh would would say no to that right would protest to that so then i think it's just like he was not believable in, like, I believe doing it. that. <laughs> to make the case for he may have refused to do it, 
um, Scientology is extremely anti-drug. Right. So exactly. Yeah. So that could be why he would refuse to do it. Just to say, I have no idea. But, yeah, but I think also, also I think it's interesting because like he has not done anything remotely like this since then. So I kind of wonder if maybe he got in trouble with the ghost of L. Ron Hubbard or something. Yeah. Like maybe this movie increased his thetans and, um, and that's why. They... Maybe that's why he had to divorce Nicole Kidman because he made this movie with her. I will say that, like, I've watched a shit ton of interviews with Tom Cruise, like, around this time um, in preparation for this. And, like, he has not, f I have not seen anything like that, like, just, like, the his demeanor, the way he is. Like, it's, we talk, we joke so much about Tom Cruise being, like, a robot. Like, I've said, like, oh, at night Tom Cruise just, like, stands at a window like the, like the T-800 <laughs> waiting for the sun to come up. Um, mm -hmm. Like, it's hard for me to imagine him, like, existing in a room without other people in it. Um, mm -hmm. But watching him around, like, talk around this time and 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 act and and um, and be around Nicole, uh, it he absolutely feels like a human being. Mm -hmm. So I don't a know. weird, a weird human being. But yes, weird, weird. He's but also I'm, at but he's also at his most sexy. And I feel like that helps cover. I, I don't disagree with you. But I think when he's he was at his peak beauty and sexiness at this time period, and so you can be a big weirdo when you're like when you're hot, and then you get older, and it's not as cute anymore. But obviously he's Tom Cruise, so he can still get away with a lot, I guess. I guess. I still love him. But yeah, um, I feel like it would be really fun to do a Christmas party that was eyes wide shut themed. <laughs> <laughs> I would really like to do that. You should do it. <laughs> I was saying like someday when one of us has stairs in our house, we can do that lights all up the stairway thing and like have a have an eyes wide shut party oh, and put those man. put those weird like Ishtar stars everywhere. No. <laughs> like it's Chris Christmas, but Satan, right. you know. <laughs> Be sure you specify on the invitation that this is not the orgy party. This is the. Uh, I think that's thing. fine too. People can show up like that if okay. they want to. <laughs> All right. I think they should use the password though. I'm going to show up in my robe and my like, uh. string thong. <laughs> I yeah. really want to do this now. <laughs> um, so, do we have the the cruise minute? Is that what is the thrust of that? What is? I think uh, it's something it, we want to say about Tom Cruise, which is very easy to do when we're watching Tom Cruise movies, but should become much more difficult <coughs> once Tom Cruise isn't in the movies we're watching. Okay, so just any note I had about Tom Cruise. Yeah, sure. some something maybe a little like, you know, both these things we mentioned were kind of sidebar items, uh, little short brief things and then maybe yeah. in the future they will be things we can t manage to tangentially link to Tom Cruise somehow. Well, I guess building off of um you kind of talked about how he's he's almost he's vulnerable in this film and he's not in a lot mm -hmm. of his other films. Uh, that that made me think of this little moment in the movie, right? You know, right after he tells uh, Nicole Kidman, you know, he breaks down. And he says, "Like, I'll tell you everything. I'll tell you everything." Mm -hmm. uh, then it kind of cuts to the next morning, and she's there with a cigarette, and she looks. You know, she's been crying, and she looks yeah mad. Um, the uh, it cuts to him, and he. I don't even think he says anything, but he's like so yes. sunken and ashamed. The way that he is sitting, I noticed that too. Yeah. And I was like, I've never seen Tom Cruise look like that. And it's only for like, you know, five seconds in this movie. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so I thought that was a noteworthy Cruise thing. 
for my cruise. Yeah, I totally agree. I I noted it. So I agree. (laughs) Just like his posture when he's sitting on the couch across from her is like, wow. Yeah, he's just totally sunken. But all right. Well, I believe that that concludes our Eyes Wide Shut episode, which concludes our. uh, I do have something to say. First triple feature. I'm sorry, Andrew. We're done. Uh, you're gonna have to save it for the next episode. <laughs> I, I, it's, it's. I have. I do have one. I do have one more thing that I want to say. Go ahead. That I, yeah, go ahead. Um. So after this watch, I to this is. I think that, that I've decided that this is my favorite Stanley Kubrick movie, and I think it's better than 2001. Really? All right. Yeah. Wow. I, I mean, do. it's definitely it's definitely mine. It's like the only one I want to watch. <laughs> Yeah, but it's like that's that's not a thought that I've ever had really, I yeah. think. Or, you know, but I I I think I think this is his I think this is his masterpiece. This is my favorite writing, probably. I mean, uh, Doctor Strange Love is very good writing, obviously, but I just uh, this is the Stanley Kubrick movie that's for me, I think. Yeah. Um also it, all, it Tom says Cruise that in the credits. In <laughs> No, but that's what it feels like. Whereas, like, Age, in, Age of Innocence is the is the Scorsese movie that's for me. Like, this is Kubrick. Uh, if I, if you know, is Kubrick's version of a romantic comedy. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know where I would rank this. Uh, I, yeah, I, I do think you don't. Have, you, you don't. You don't have to. It's just I thought it was a big deal. Sure. No. Yeah. I love. I love Barry Lyndon like visually, but I don't really care about what happens in it. Yeah. Um, but this one is like visually really cool, and the and the script is awesome, and and I think it's bit like I think I think that it is just as 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 big and as thoughtful as uh, as two thousand one. Like it yeah. really. I really felt like in the same way that the themes of 2001 are like these huge things that mm-hmm. you, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that you are grappling with. I think that this movie is the same. Like I feel even when they're in that tiny room, um, I feel like this immense sense of, of scale in, in the performances in in the, in the relationships and people that they're representing mm-hmm. in the things the movie's trying to say. Um, so yeah, I think that's really cool. Like, definitely yeah that's it cool well yeah no, I, I agree i think it's a pretty perfect movie i mean i don't it's it's hard to say because so many i love so many of his movies but but yeah but yes interesting um, yeah yeah for sure it's it's splitting hairs yeah um all right well i don't have like a uh, formal outro yet i guess i should work on that for the next episode but uh thank you for listening and please join us next month for our next slow motion triple feature um which is to be determined. I will probably talk to Kit and Andrew after we wrap here. Um, And that's all folks. Farewell.